0: Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast today. I am joined by Amy Elizabeth Fox. And I'm really pleased to be joined by Amy because the last conversation we had two years ago was really well received. It really felt like it tapped into the zeitgeist. So we are back together again. We're going to be speaking about a few things today. One thing we'll talk about is... Is there anything that Amy feels in the two years since we last spoke that's become even more important in the work that she does with Mobius? We will talk about the importance of teachers and how we can choose them. We'll talk about how we can shift our relationship to life. We'll talk about the hallmarks of evolutionary practitioners and the Mobius approach to organizational change. Amy Elizabeth Fox is the founder and CEO of Mobius Executive Leadership, which is a premier leadership development firm with offices in Boston and London. She has experience consulting to senior leadership on issues relating to human capital, organizational health and leadership development. And over the past decade and a half, she's spoken at numerous national industry gatherings and led powerful workshops for corporate executives across the country. She's also a psychotherapist and executive coach. One more thing, if you feel inspired to share this podcast, I'd really appreciate that to help spread the word. And if you feel like joining our ever-growing community of transformational practitioners and coaches, then you can head to coachesrising.com. Just throw your name in the sign-up box there and then you'll stay in the loop about all the things that we create which are not this podcast. How delightful to be with you. It's been way too long. We, we started planning this, I think, like four or five months ago. And, um, I'm so, well, it, it's just good to be with you, but it, it should have happened sooner. How are you?
1: I'm really well, Joel. It's it's such a joy to be with you also. And I, I should say that our last conversation a few years back stayed stayed in my heart as a real jewel of talking about what really matters in this healing work that we're both doing and committed to. And I'm so looking forward to this rich dialogue again. Very happy to yeah. be
0: here. Yeah. That was a very popular conversation. It touched a lot of people. I think it just spoke into the zeitgeist or the, you know, like you just spoke to a lot of people in terms of what they were feeling was so important in our times. Mm -hmm. And I kind of want to tune in again to really just see where you're at. It's like a couple of years on. And um, so there's a lot of questions I have, but I do want to ask this first, which is, is there anything, you know, since we last spoke a couple of years ago that you feel that you're like doubling down on or, emphasizing even more in the the work you do with Mobius, the facilitation work, the transformational work with companies even in your own practice like maybe there's certain skills or certain certain aspects of the work that have just become even more important
1: That's a beautiful question. Let me take them separately if I could what what Mobius has got in the foreground and what's happening for me personally in my own unfolding path. Um, In terms of Mobius, I I think we talked about both these themes earlier, but they're much more prominent in my awareness now, post-COVID. And I talked about this also at our annual gathering last October. One is the prominence of trauma in the workplace and the degree to which what we call dysfunctional uh, or developmental edges for leaders are really symptoms of earlier trauma in their lives. Uh, And the prevalence of that is, I think, far more dominating in terms of shaping organizational culture and behavior than we acknowledge or certainly than most leadership interventions uh, address or are are geared to address. Um, and because I've had the privilege of studying for almost a decade now with Thomas Hubel, I understand that trauma not just to be personal and family narrative, but to also be collective trauma. Um, so we're talking about generations of pain and Uh, different kinds of psychological and relational uh, violence. So just to illustrate it with some specifics, uh, everything from I grew up in a family where there was addiction, or I grew up in a family where there was violence, or I grew up in a family that had suffered an illness or a tragic loss, to I grew up in a context where there was racism, where there was poverty, there was forced migration, uh, there was bullying at school, Um, there was bullying at home, Uh, to I grew up in a context where there was war and really existential threat, Um, or my parents grew up in such a context, or my grandparents grew up in such a context. So we now know that the individual executive themselves may have had what looked like what they would call a, quote, happy childhood. But if there's pain, unprocessed pain generations back, there's a kind of holding and attachment and free flowing of love they didn't get And they struggle with the aftermath of the absence of attachment uh, in some ways, the same as if they had had a more impinging adverse incident. So the level of trauma that people are walking with, which has a concomitant um, aftermath of all the symptoms of the survival strategies that they developed as children, which were sort of brilliant when they were developed as ways to preserve and protect their psyche or their physical being, but they don't uh, they don't update them. It's like they're operating with an earlier operating system um, that made sense as children but doesn't make so much sense now as you know, much more resourced, much more potentially uh, safe adults and they haven't updated their strategies of relationship. So you start to see in teams and organizations protective strategies, aggressive strategies, isolation strategies, strategies to dampen down the emotion and not feel yourself. So a lack of self-contact, which creates, by definition, a lack of an ability to compassionately feel the other. So all of those relational you know, symptoms, I believe, are the sort of root cause of organizational dysfunction. So when you go in to look at improving culture or creating high-performing culture or innovative culture, if you don't know how to help people to restore their embodiment and their basic sense of safety and their basic ability to build authentic intimacy, you're missing the golden key of the shift. Um, And that is very deep restorative repair work. That's very, very, you know, precise, attuned relation is the medicine for that. Um, So I would say the level of trauma is one much more prominent feature of our work than it was, and much more explicit feature of our work than it was when we started 18 years ago. The second is, uh, you know, I I also talked about in October, the quality of uh, inspiration or purpose. Sometimes we call it in the business world. I might call it spirituality or holiness if I was being more explicit. The quality of resource when people feel that they are in touching something eternal or touching something that's essential or activated by something that matters beyond themselves across generations and across time and across what we think of as the limits of possibility. That quality of aspirational openness um, has become also much more of a feature of our work. I think in part because if you're asking people to go into the dark places, you have to create a kind of golden shield of hope around that, um, that makes that feasible, that makes that reasonable, (laughs) um, and that makes that doable. Um, And so uh, the balance of dark and light in our work has become something I much more think of as part of the craft of transformation. Um, So I would say those are the two big things institutionally that we're looking at more closely, how to reactivate or reignite the natural fire of the spirit inside an organization. And often we use expressive arts and devotional arts as a way to do that. So music, martial arts, meditation, poetry, Uh, painting, Uh, we have done Japanese brushstroke painting. Um, uh, Time in nature is an enormous resource for that, Um, but making sure that people have some practice of self-transcendence that brings in the wind of the future into their lives in a very palpable kinesthetic and embodied way, uh, I would say that artistry is a second part of feature of our work. And more personally, I've spent the last year studying very immersively with a teacher named Patrick Connor, and he's been guiding me in a process of really um, uh, unwinding the subconscious storehouse of what he would consider or it, uh, Indian lineage would look at as past life karmic footprints. Um, and whether you believe in past lives or not, it, in a way, it doesn't matter because everything gets recapitulated in this life. So you can simply use your current lifetime as the Narrative to examine, or as the felt experience to examine, and it's a kind of key lock to everything else. Um, And so, one thing that I would say in my own personal work that I've learned to have a lot more humility about 35 years into my personal healing journey is how much of the gunk that drives us, our motivational and fear systems really are live in the unconscious and you can't get to them through an insight-based process. You can't even get to them through a relational process. Uh, At least in my experience, uh, you can only get to them through an initiatory and activating process that where you're being guided by somebody who really can hold a much, much wider um, lens on healing. Um, this would be true in my work with Thomas. This is true in my energy work with my teacher, Linda Cicera. This is certainly true in my work with Patrick. All of these people have a mystical uh, uh, orientation to the walk of, of clearing your field. And in my experience, reverence for the unconscious uh, would be my third theme I would add to your, uh, the answer to your question, like really understanding the limits of the mind, really understanding the limits of the mind.
0: There's so much in what you just shared uh, that I could actually want to unpack with you a bit further, but if we just stay with what you just shared now, because it's really beautiful uh, to hear. And I do feel that the limits of the mind is perhaps one of the, one of the things we're beginning to transition through in our times and, you know, to acknowledge the gifts of the mind too. I don't want, you know, reject thinking and rationality. It's really important. But um, so, so if it does feel like we're moving into an era where there's a kind of poetic attunement, attunement to attunement itself and subtle sensing
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that capacity to sense something deeper than what we see at face value is, is just a, an amazing skill. And then when I hear you talk about the work that, Patrick and Thomas and Linda are doing, I'm like, wow, that sounds like a, that's a high bar. You know, these are, you know, if you talk about these initiatory uh, experiences, mystical intelligences they're bringing to the work, um, I guess I'm wondering, is that something that you, first of all, the importance of teachers, Mm. therefore, you know, and I, I know we want to talk about that, but also then in terms of training, people to do that kind of work do you, how transferable do you think those skills are do you need do you need a lifetime of mystical practice you know thomas hubel for example you know even if you did trained like him he's also a remarkable person i mean they all all three of them are so yeah how how uh, trainable do you think this is how scalable do you think that is
1: yeah Well, like my answer, perhaps that's a a multidimensional question. So let me see if I can just walk my way through the journey of your question. It was intricate and wonderful. Um, So first of all, um, you know, I am referencing three of the living master teachers on the planet. So it, it is a high bar and I'm not at all meaning to suggest that I or anybody listening to this podcast needs to aspire to that level of consciousness. But what I'm pointing to that you're mirroring, Joel, which is right is that all of us as practitioners need to cultivate the ability to sense and feel and intuit more Um, because the amount of information that's in the room when you're facilitating an individual that you're coaching or a group or a team that you're working with or a large workshop, the amount of information that's coming towards us is far wider than the immediate senses can perceive. So if you don't cultivate those capacities, you're literally just missing half the data from which you might operate as a facilitator or an interventionist. And the very good news is um, there are some pretty immediate practices one can do in daily life or in one's professional vocational life that give you more of an alertness and a refined sensing ability. So simply taking time in stillness, as an example, so that your mind learns to quiet And as you said, it's not in any way to be disrespectful of the richness of the intellect or the ability to think synthetically or to, you know, think disruptively. Those are very important capacities in a complex environment. But I think if we don't learn to set them aside, we don't become the space in which new information can enter um, and in which our perceptive system gets kind of, I don't know, glistening to receive, maybe would be a way to say it. So... Stillness is one obvious practice. A second one is dropping the presupposition that the material plane is all that's happening. And when you can let your imagination, which we do wonderfully as children, by the way, this is an intrinsic talent. We're reclaiming something, not learning something. When we can reimagine the world, so that we're just open to things happening that are non-ordinary reality or unpredictable information or have a little bit of taste of the magical, um, more of that reveals itself. It's you know it's like literally is our antenna open to that transmission and if your antenna is open, the information will come. Um, and I feel the same way about teachers. When you start to really, maybe let's say something about the stages of the path of this, but let me finish the competencies. So music is another amazing gateway, like to put yourself in immersive context of truly gorgeous music that brings in the lusciousness of life that brings in the, I don't know, the dimensionality of life that brings in the extraordinary artistry of inspiration into your consciousness, you just become more expanded. And in that more expanded state, again, your field is more receptive. Um, so, I, it's not like you have to go find, you know, platform nine and three quarters and get invited to Hogwarts to have some of these skills. They're actually quite readily available. And in fact, when you do workshops with groups and you can create a certain field of coherence, and I'm sure this is true in a coaching relationship as well, although that's not my particular practice, in a heightened state of coherence or peace or presence. Immediately, the group starts to have synchronized information. Immediately, they start to anticipate and read in in a sort of high high level of empathy, or one could even say psychic merging, they get information about one another they wouldn't normally get. They start giving each other feedback that's far more precise and calibrated to what actually the developmental edge of the other person is. They start to say things in a way that transmits so much love that they impact the other person in a much deeper level of their hurt and their pain. So the field becomes pregnant with skills that it doesn't have at a more distracted and chaotic state. Um, So these are natural skills that they don't need a lot of training, actually, but they do need a conscious um, practice um, and a a commitment to to um, to refine them, a commitment to cultivate them. Uh, So that's that's the like that's the simplest level of answer to your question. I think the other um, the other tool is to immerse yourself in scriptural practices, devotional practices, mantra practices, prayer practices, martial arts practices, something that actually requires you to state change um, yourself in a very daily way, in a very steady way um, that builds a different muscle of presence um, into your system and into your way of walking. And then that quality of presence again, naturally lends itself to a deeper listening to life, um, which is really ultimately what we're saying, like how much can you let life permeate you? How much of life comes to you? I also believe that when you walk with that deeper listening or that wider invitation to hear life, people start intuiting that. And so you also start to get different levels of confidences. You start to be the one people tell their secrets to. You start to be the one they bring their sorrows to and their grief to. You start to be the one they ask for support. Um, And that's a beautiful privilege to be the refuge for someone. Uh, And then once you do that, then you start to notice when someone needs that of you. You start to identify yourself with being a walking refuge. And so you make extensions of that offer where otherwise you might assume somebody is in a private hardship. And the blend of, us, me and me and you and us, it softens, and you start to walk in a field of usness. If someone in my field, in my perimeter perimeter, in my orbit is in pain, that's mine to tend to. That's not their private matter. That's our matter. And then when you take that to a societal level, there's all kinds of, what Thomas gorgeously calls scars in the fabric of humanity. That suddenly become my accountability and my responsibility and part of my life's work. They aren't happening over there. They're happening to us. And I think, you know, ultimately to be a societal servant, everything has to be your problem. Everything, you know, including the health and well being of the ecosphere or the biosphere, that has to be felt as a part of your life's walk. Yeah. So just a couple more things, Joel, on this theme of finding a teacher and choosing a teacher. I, um, I think it is really important that um, because when one chooses a teacher, you're really granting somebody the authority to guide your process and to um, take you through a spiritual path, on a spiritual path, that we learn to be very informed consumers and to know how to find a trustworthy teacher versus a teacher who is unethical or exploitive or abusive in any way. I know many people listening will have worked with clients who've had that kind of very tragic spiritual abuse. So I want to just add a resource for people. Um, my friend, Steve Hassan uh, is a world expert on cults and on mind control technique and technology and on his website, which is www.freedomofmind.com. He has a very clear architecture of the ways that of high ethic, high generosity, spiritual communities and teachers function and the way that abusive and exploitive communities and teachers function. And I really encourage people before they pick a teacher or go out looking to find a teacher, inform themselves and get educated on how to do that safely. Um, And of course, if anybody has already struggled in this way, Steve is a resource for helping people to deal with the aftermath. Um, And the last thing I want to say is that I, I realize that for many people, because there's been such extensive abuse, both in formal religious structures and in uh, other uh, spiritual contexts, um, people really struggle with the notion of giving their um, path over to being guided. And uh, I think there is something really truthful about a recovery process from any abuse of any authority, whether it's an authority in your family, an authority in your government, or an authority who's working with you spiritually. Um, that's a good piece of healing work to do so that that whatever the aftermath of that experience is, it doesn't become a block to having a mature relationship with a teacher or a guide, um, which at least in my experience is absolutely instrumental at a certain level in the maturation process um, to have somebody working with you, assuring you, pointing out your blind spots and activating um, the content that's kind of hard to get to otherwise. So I just wanted to add that um, because I am aware that it's a very charged topic in our field and in the world. And I wouldn't want to be naive to the fact that finding a teacher is really a process of sorting and something that people have to really inform themselves about to do well.
0: That's really beautiful. Uh, on a bookmark, you said you were going to mention about the stages. Uh, yeah. uh, and I, I, but the, a little reflection I have here is, uh, on the one hand, we could talk about this being mystical, and that sounds kind of... You know, again like uh like a high bar or something. But on the other hand, I I'm kind of hearing as you describe it's like through through refining our our sensitivity and our, our um uh there's a word I'm looking for um which is close to this, it'll come to me in a second, but it's like we you're actually coming back to an experience again and again, and then these patterns. Uh, start to emerge or you might start to just sense things see things that you just didn't see before and i mean i'm just thinking about this with my own one on one coaching where whereby you you just start to see something but it's it's kind of hard exactly to say how you're seeing it but you're seeing it very clearly and and then you can bring that into the conversation it's like a it's like a refined sensing and seeing that just didn't exist A couple of years ago, and that would have seemed like magic back at that point. But because you've done that deeper work, Mm -hmm. it's it's quite ordinary. I think that's what I'm trying to get to. It's a certain sensibility. That was the word I'm looking for. Yeah, uh, a connoisseurship, perhaps. And Yeah, yeah,
1: beautiful. I mean, I do think as practitioners that we build a body of pattern recognition that you know, at a very high level of uh, experience looks magical. Um, but really it's just, I've seen this many times and therefore I have, I can see what I'm seeing. I know how to discern what what's being shown to me. Um, and I think that can show up in very, you know, common patterns, like I know when somebody's present with me and I know when they've dissociated. So I can call them back to their, to notice they've kind of left themselves. To somebody who doesn't have an embodiment practice or doesn't even know they're dissociating, that looks like a magic trick. How do you know I've left my body? But to somebody who has that attunement, it's a, it's actually as simple as my seeing there's a yellow pillow behind you and you're wearing a black shirt. Like, oh, they're they're gone. They're kind of glazed over. They're not here. There's nobody to talk to. It's a felt sense, um, and also to track patterns over time. Like I've been talking to you now for three years, and I notice how common the theme of feeling betrayed is, or how often you feel. Abandoned, or how often you don't say what's true for you. Instead of looking at the individual instance of the business problem you're bringing me, now I can be the one who reflects it at how it lives in your psyche as a habit of relationship. That pattern discernment is also could look like magic, but it's actually just walking with somebody over time and zooming out to reflect and be the witness function for their habits of relationship. Um, So I absolutely agree with you. Almost anything that we could call numinous or um, sort of subtle, to use the word you used, is really just a refined observing capacity that over time uh, you notice more and you have more ability to make the appropriate meaning of it and to reflect it in a way that's useful for your client. And just to demystify the notion of mysticism, really what I mean to say is the truth of the divine, that, that you can orient your life to understanding that there are higher realms walking with us, that the ability to access those realms through prayer, through devotion, through a willingness to offer yourself to serve life um, is a very palpable, real resource in the world and in our lives. And um, not just something that happened in ancient scripture, but something that is actively happening in modern life and immediately accessible to one's turning uh, in that direction. Uh, and uh I really do believe that the minute one offers oneself to be guided, the guidance comes. I just really believe that. So I don't even want to make that sound all that mysterious. Mm. Uh, it's like just creating a space in your life to have something higher be part of it. Uh, you know, it's a very basic premise of uh, almost all 12 step recovery programs to surrender your life to a higher power. That's really all I mean to say.
0: And I love that phrase, like demystifying mysticism. That's cool as a t-shirt in that or something. And um, maybe you can name the stages. I think you haven't named that yet.
1: Yeah, stages probably sounds a whole lot more formal than what came to me in my shower epiphany this morning. <laughs> but I can share how it came to me. Um, you know, I thought th- I think that the first thing is turning is having a willingness to um, turn towards your life. You know, so what I notice in with many of the groups of executives I have the privilege to guide is that they're running from their life and doing everything they can to in small and uh, micro hacks and in large addictions of busyness, of overextension, of ego inflation, of relational distancing, um, not feel themselves uh, and to not let life really touch them. Um, There's kind of a numbing and a guarding and a pretext or pretense way of doing their um, leading. I'll say it that way. Um, so the first turning is a turning towards the immediacy of felt experience and allowing yourself to reinhabit and re-embody yourself there's a turning towards the questions of your life. So if you're doing what Bob Keegan and Jennifer Garvey Berger and other and Lisa Leahy theorists on adult development, if you're orienting your life from an external orientation or what they describe as a socialized mind, you're not yet asking the questions of what matters to you and what you value and what lines you won't cross ethically and what's yours to guard and protect and what's yours to heal and restore. So I think the second turning is a turning towards the questions of your life that ask you to become more self authoring. And I think the third turning is a turning towards less of a self driven narrative and less of an ego centric um, ambition towards a life of giving. So, in Kabbalistic terms, they describe this, I think, quite beautifully. They talk about the spiritual maturation as the turning from the will to receive to the will to bestow. I think that's very beautiful. So that's the sort of final turning is how do I become, you know, not grasping, but giving. Um, and, And in that turning, there also are stages. So the first stage is really study and practice. It's letting yourself find practices, workshops, resources that can guide you early in the path. Um, Patrick says, I think quite correctly and beautifully that when you're first starting, almost anything helps. Um, so don't be too shy or worried to start, you know, just dive into wherever you're drawn, see the first book that sparks your imagination or the first workshop that excites you and quickens you and go, um, and just start learning and immersing yourself. And I think that's the first part of it. Um, The second part, I think, is what, you know, Buddhists call the Sangha or in Hebrew practice would be called the Hevra, finding a community to learn with and giving yourself generously to entwining your life with a group of people who are spiritual seekers or practitioners or trying to do the work that you're doing um, so that you don't walk alone, which is one of the great pandemics I think of our time is over loneliness or Mm -hmm. isolation. I think we put such an emphasis on what we call resilience, which basically means an attempt to have no human relational needs um, and to live life without a relational vocabulary, which I think is a crime. Um, So binding yourself to a community is kind of a next stage. And then there really is, you know, ultimately a stage I think of finding uh, what you call to teacher, what I call teachers, people who can guide your process through transmission, through initiation, through a very uh, purposeful set of gates of evolutionary work um, and healing work, restorative work can do so uh, with kind of a mystical mist that taps into the unconscious, preverbal, subconscious aspect of healing work. Um, and do so through a vibratory f- transmission, um, which really is a kind of coherence elevation or a frequency elevation. Um, and uh, and at the end of that path, there's just grace. There's just moments where you receive a blessing from a teacher, from a ritual, from, a, from life, sometimes in the form of a hardship. Uh, Patrick says there are blessings that look like blessings and there are blessings that don't look like blessings. And that's all there is.
0: Mm, that's nice that's nice yeah I can certainly uh think of some of those in my life which initially I was like oh man that what a misfortune uh to to like these two guys I met in India who turned my life upside down with all these ideas they introduced to me mm. and you know at first I hated them uh for that you know because I, I of
1: it. Yes. for the
0: upheaval of it yeah and then actually you know 6 months later a year later i was like these guys were Bodhisattvas, you know for because now i've come through the other side and I, and i hear in this um what you're describing um yeah the necessity of of like um turn you know to building the kind of body in a way like yeah in the beginning you just need to practice you need so- anything helps starts you on the path and then and then and then that inner move of like, what's my life about? You know, like who am I? Who am I becoming? And that's all building the container for then that transmission that you talked about through teachers to land in a in a different kind of way. I know I found that so important on my path at one point. It was like I'd reached the limits of what I could do alone, even what I could do in um without without a teacher in in Sangha. Mm-hmm. Uh, that i that i needed a, a teacher or teachers to transmit that that those frequencies of of awakeness and that that even if they weren't talking to me was the teaching was just like boom there was a, an embodied attunement to that which which was um continuing my process basically so yeah
1: that's right. I mean, in in Indian spirituality, they call that presence or that transmission darshan. and it is true that it's it's beyond the content of the teaching. it's a it's an immediacy of being in the field of a more awakened person um, has its own transmission and its own um, reorganizing function uh, of your of your energy field, which also is a pointing at how some of this is uh, more in, really is very subtle elevation. it's it's subtle growth. It's not. Um, it's not an insight process. Um, I just wanted to say also that um, when you're in a moment of pain or hardship, that pain is um, is real. So I don't mean to be discounting. I hope in no way would I sound discounting of the nature of suffering on this plane. And one can really learn to take the book of life and use it as a pointer to what's unfinished internally. And when you can work with daily life as a resource for your own um, illumination or healing you just then you can harvest the hardships you're going through rather than just suffer through them so that's you know that's a really wonderfully different paradigm of thinking about how you experience life and whether life is happening to you or life is gifting you once life is gifting you in that very deep way that's a very big difference whether life is happening to you or mm-hmm. life is gifting you and once you can really embody the and understand the wisdom of life is gifting me, it, 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 then nothing really can harm you in that sense. Whether it happens and it appears as something good or it appears as something challenging, you can use either either kind of life event as something to mature yourself and open your heart more wide. Um, that's what they mean by a heart as wide as the world. It's the heart that receives all of life. And I think the ability to do that in your own life also is the precursor to the ability to invite other people uh, to trust you as someone who can witness whatever difficulty they've walked in their lives. And as a practitioner, that's maybe the most important competency we can cultivate, that if you have lived it, I can witness it. I can give my strength, my love, my holding, my care to whatever you've walked. And mm. I think that that's sort of the ultimate pledge and really the rationale for putting oneself into these processes is to become more and more an instrument of that piece.
0: Mm. Yeah. Just beautifully spoken. Um, I actually want to ask you about the facilitators that you have and you, yourself, you know, and you have this notion of an evolutionary facilitator, but just before I do that, this question came up of, Uh, gift life gifting you how uh, how what has made that possible for you to hold life in that way I ask that because I know that I've been through cycles of that you know like where it feels like I can live that as an embodied truth and then fall out of it in some way because it's tough you know it's like actually sometimes doesn't feel like life is gifting you it sucks and it's hard and you know, and I think particularly in in this climate we live in, this in this day and age, where there's so much uncertainty, it it can feel unstable and like where is that uh, ground in life? So, how, what's helped you see life in that way?
1: Yeah, a few things come to me, Joel. I mean, one, you know, I had a very uh, a profoundly challenging childhood, and I had cancer very early in my twenties. And so I had a saturated experience of the harder, um, more traumatic part of life for the first 20 years of my life, I would say. And at no moment in that process of acute emotional violence or physical illness, could I have heard, or would it have made any sense, or would it have been useful for someone to say to me, life is gifting you. Life was teaching me, life was polishing me, and life was hard. It's true what you said, I think. So there are, there are m- m- moments when you're in it that uh, where it's just not realistic to ask somebody to think, oh, this is a grace. But if you ask me 40 years later, how I think about having been born into all of that difficulty and challenge on many dimensions, I'm quite certain that it, you know, it prepared me to devote myself for 35 years to my own healing path. I don't know that I would have had the fire of commitment to work as hard therapeutically, relationally, spiritually as I have, if I hadn't been just desperately trying to get out of pain. I mean, that was the motivation for my seeking, at least to begin with. So that's that, you know, there's a one-to-one correlation between what I walked and what became my life path. Um, I think a second thing to say is that because I was so on fire to have a life of joy and a life of freedom, I passionately looked for trustworthy therapists, trustworthy group process, trustworthy teachings, and I became really good at curating an ethical practitioner. Um, And I built a company whose job it is to curate um, trustworthy healers and teachers and guides. And um, that passion also comes you know, from having misstepped and having made mistakes and having the humility to see that I had made a mistake and, um, and having had the support to extract myself from those mistaken relationships. So I feel like, I, I mean, I could point to many different things that look in the moment like even devastating or tragic challenges that are in some ways that, I'm not saying that isn't part of the fabric of life. I'm just saying one could either feel very heavy about that or one could say how can that help me to be a better being, better person, better woman, better partner, better friend, better teacher, better better you know, have a better life and that that is a much richer perspective to hold, I think.
0: Mm, yeah, I Think it's beautiful, and the there's something about the something in you that enabled you or facilitated you to seek and move out of suffering, and then to be able to to kind of look back and recontextualize these experiences, and and that that's not just a mental process, but actually to be able to uh, there's a kind of alchemical process taking place there, perhaps of 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 reclaiming the gifts inside of these incredibly difficult experiences.
1: Yeah, and that's right. I mean, that's really correct and wisely said. I think the alchemical process also includes bearing witness to the hardships, having people hear your story. In my case, it's included crying and screaming and shaking and very cathartic expressions of what still lives somatically in my pain body and having that because, you know, cradled and held and attended to. Um, It's uh, it's included acts of compassion to see that even as difficult as my life was, it was privileged in many other dimensions. So not to just live as if, you know, yet to have some point of comparison in the world's pain body, I think is also important because without that, the natural arising compassion gets deadened. You get too self-oriented and narcissistic in your own healing process, and you don't turn the lens out to, you know, where else there's suffering, which is a very important part of the healing process. Um, And you asked about evolutionary um, practitioners or facilitators. We're pointing to one dimension of it, which is to see whoever is sitting in front of you carries a much wider footprint of pain than their own life story. And that they offer therefore an opportunity to restore and remediate something much more ancestral, much more longitudinal, much more dimensional than just their life story. And when you can help them to themselves look wider, To all the tributaries and events in their ancestry and their family history and their cultural uh, story that contribute to how they are wired and who they became. Um, You also help them to have a much more um, intricate map of their own healing work. Um, And I think that's the difference between just being a transformational practitioner who's trying to help somebody make meaning of their immediate life circumstance and an ev- evolutionary practitioner who's trying to really help a restorative wave go out into life and into organizational life and into societal life. Um, that that might be one way to point at the difference. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's um, that. Let, let's continue that. Actually, I think that's a really beautiful segue into. And I know, in a way, our whole conversation has been about evolutionary facilitation in the sense of perhaps another thing is yeah. Can you? Uh, sensitize oneself and and you know begin to to see these patterns that we talked about. I'm just curious for you, what um, what are some of the attributes that you see in evolutionary facilitators that you you know that we haven't named yet, or you know we could just paint the gestalt of that.
1: Well, that's a simple answer: love. That they walk with a extremely explicit footprint of love. And that love means whatever you've done in your life, I can be a field of understanding, whatever transgressions you've made. I'm a field of non-judgment, whatever hurt you have. I'm a field of holding, uh, whatever you dream. I'm an amplifying field of support. Um, and whatever is yours to gift i'm i'm walking with you to help it happen yeah but unconditional love the hardest part of giving unconditional love honestly jules we don't give it to ourselves mm. a level of inner criticism and inner attack Um, Patrick talks about everybody feels themselves as a self-improvement project before the divine. Like we're all waiting to be judged because from almost all of us, our early early mirroring was not unconditional. It was blinded by the pain of our parents, blinded by the pain of our community, blinded by the habits of society that are hurtful. Um, So the inner experience of occupying oneself is usually not self-kind and self-tender and self-accepting. And to whatever degree we're unseated from that inner unconditionality, it's hard to grant that to another person, Um, which is why there's such a close connection and such an urgency in my mind for practitioners to do their own inner work, because that is the ceiling on what you can offer somebody. It's not the technique, you know, or the technology you've trained. It's what is your inner experience that you can bring to somebody like a cushion or a sofa to sit on.
0: Mm. And that, that seems so, I want to like underline what you're saying there, because it seems so important in terms of a distinction you're offering that we see ourselves as a self-improvement project. And that can pervade so much of how we approach ourselves and the work and even the work of supporting others. You know, like this is a kind of tension uh, we're holding that um, what's here right now isn't, shouldn't be here and isn't sacred, and is in the way, you know, like Thomas Hubel, I know, he he often talks about how we talk about things being in the way, you know, like, and then when I'm in that place over there, then I'll be okay. And so that just seems so fundamental that it allows something very different if we don't hold that there's a problem about who we are.
1: I mean, Thomas is, you know, just so powerful on this point that, and I I referenced it earlier, you know, that what looks dysfunctional now was a brilliant survival strategy earlier. So if I am judging the things I do that are less functional, I'm trying to think of an example in my own life. Um, Yeah. I, you know, when I get very anxious, I overeat. That would be a good example. I I have a compensation strategy for my own arising trauma that I have a food addiction. So I eat too much it's getting much better, but it's still an issue. And I did that as a kid. I did that to handle the chaos of my childhood. I did that to handle uh, my mother's rage. I did that to handle my sense of loneliness and overwhelm, and I do it, you know, as an adult until I don't. And um, if I judge that in myself, which I did for many years, and I try to do less, I'm being as cruel to myself as as the cruelty that was done to me. I'm just repeating, in a in a really harsh and unnecessary way, a kind of monologue, interior monologue of abuse. Um, And that introjected habit of self-criticism, you know, I really do think is the biggest barrier to two things. It's a barrier to being unconditional for other people. And it also means I will be defensive when people point out to me the ways in which I am colluding with hurt. So if I'm in a conversation as a white person about race and I'm too self-critical I can't hear somebody have an honest conversation with me about power and oppression or about racism or about my own unconscious bias. I can't because it resonates with my own sense of guilt and my own sense of shame. So if you want to be a participant in a liberatory process, not just for a person, but for the culture at large, for all the places where we're out of alignment around equity and inclusion, I have to do some kind of inner self-blessing to be show up open in that conversation and unguarded, or I won't be an effective ally. I just can't um, because it's too, it's too painful. Um, So this is also, I I think this also has a real socio-cultural political dimension, what we're talking about, this sort of interactive self-acceptance, because it makes it possible for me to step up to really, you know, a restorative justice process in a way that I won't be otherwise. And that's a critical function of any leader in any organization that wants to help an organization to address collective trauma. We have to have the ability to be in the heat of the conversation.
0: Yeah. How do you, there's so many questions that come up from what you just said. One of them is if we contextualize it inside of the work that you do with, with groups and teams, um, so we've talked about evolutionary facilitators and the role of, of like music and art. Mm. And then, you know, then there's this way in which we can kind of support people by being loving, you know, and, and, and helping them attune to their inner experience of, of, of trauma and their conditioning. How do you evoke that in, in a space, you know, what's the journey that you take people through? And I know that's a broad question. It's probably, very dependent on where you're doing it for how long and so on. But do you see that there's a common cycle there? For example, you know, do you bring people in and then, you know, use music and art to evoke a certain sort of state and um, have them reflect on their trauma? Yeah. You know, I'll let you answer because I'm trying to answer for you there, but yeah. Yeah, How do you do that?
1: I mean, There's an a priori thing that happens before you bring the people together, which is you build a community of practitioners that do their deep healing work with one another so that they have a field of transparency, uh, unguardedness, refined compassion for pain, and an ability to stay in the heat of, of, of darkness, right? So people are walking into An invitation that is very unusual when they enter a room that is inhabited by a group of practitioners that have done that work with each other. I had a participant come in on the opening night of a program. And when he sat down in the opening circle, he said the following thing He said, When I was walking up the stairs to start this program, I had one thing in my mind of what it could be and what it would offer me. And when I walked through the threshold of the doorway, I realized, oh, this is going to be profound. That was very instructive because it points to that the invitation is a palpable signal in in the field of what's possible and what's being invited. So if you are, as a group of facilitators, really present and available for everything to come, that's a felt sense for the participants. So something has to happen even before you start the program, which is really building a community that has that capacity to invite and to include. The arc of the week is um the first two days are, as you would imagine, and my sister Erica teaches these programs and she describes it very beautifully. They're just the arriving phase, you know, in Otto Charmer's, um model, this is sort of when you're coming down towards the center of the you and the center of the you process is really where uh, to use your word, Joel, the alchemical dimension of it happens. So you have to help people to kind of drop the shield and hack consciously the sort of social norms of small talk and, not feeling. Um, In our programs, we do that very explicitly by naming the dynamics of the universality of the emotional experience that all of us walk all day long with joy and hurt and fear and anger. And um, those are the natural anxiety. Those are the natural arisings of emotions. But we've learned because organizations tell us feelings aren't welcome here. We've learned to numb ourselves and to act above or hover above our felt experience. And by naming that explicitly, and then asking executives, what's the cost of that? And they say things like, I'm too alone, or I feel like inauthentic, or like I'm an imposter, or um, it's, you know, nobody can take a risk with each other. There's not enough safety or I, nobody knows what's happening in my personal life and my, you know I lose my mother and I don't tell the person whose desk is next to me, or I have an autistic child and I've been part of this professional services firm for 20 years and no one knows. Like the level of secrecy or privatization of our inner lives is so extreme. So you start to name that, they name it. I mean, the, everyone knows the cost of this game everyone's in a experience of the cost of this game. It's just an unspeakable norm inside of organizations. So once you make it explicit, people see, oh, this is the default assumption, but it does not have to be this way. And actually I yearn for it not to be this way. And the minute people can see that the game is a choice, they make the other choice. They just automatically make the other choice. I, uh, thousands of people have gone through programs that I've guided. I've never had a group not make the other choice because we long to be connected. We long to be in a field of love. We long to be heard. We long to be seen. It's literally hardwired in our neurology to be mirrored and to be attuned to. So the minute you say, oh, guys, we're going to play the other game, everybody pivots. It's so natural. Um The second thing we do is we have people tell their life stories and tell it in a way that is raw and real and puts in the foreground, all the things that we normally sanitize and don't speak of. And once that has happened, the intimacy, the trust, the safety, the nakedness itself becomes a bomb. It becomes a healing resource. The field of the group naturally creates a closeness, a joy, a spontaneity, a creativity, a life vitality that then itself is restorative. You almost don't have to do anything at that point except let them hang out together. I mean, we do do things, of course, um, to deepen it, to help them make meaning of it, to apply it to why those capacities for transformation, for self-development, for closeness are resources for the organization. But essentially, it's a field intervention. It's like creating a set of a microculture for three days, for four days. If I'm lucky, I get five days to steep them in a felt experience of what it's like to operate in love. And, you know, I often joke on the last day, like, be careful when you go home, don't hug the TSA agent. Um, and I'm only half kidding because their hearts are so open. Compared to where they started five days ago, it's un- they're unrecognizable. Like I, 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 really often think we should take a before and after picture because it's such a profound sea change, energetically, somatically, and and emotionally. Um, when people feel like they are um, freed from the burden of those uh, habits of constraint and habits of suppression and habits of um, isolation.
0: And. Do you then do explicit trauma work with individuals in that process? That's one question I have. And then I'm just going to add another one if you remember it. But then I'm wondering, like, when they get back to the workplace, you know, how does that impact or sustain the work, the being in the team, the being in the company?
1: So I I may have mentioned this in my earlier podcast, Joel, but we color code our programs green, yellow, red. Um, So in a green program, we're teaching people some really good skills for building relational attunement and empathy and deep listening. In a yellow program, we're um, exploring some of the emotional terrain and relational terrain we've been speaking about in this conversation. And in a red program, we're literally taking people out during the week, and they're doing one-on-one transformational coaching sessions with trauma-trained practitioners, looking at their early childhood adverse incidents looking at the particular violence of their family life and their cultural life and uh, and we do family constellations with a really master practitioner so even in the full group we're looking at you know two generations back your grandfather was a nazi soldier two generations back they were in a you know japanese internment camp whatever whatever is the family lineage's deepest hurt also comes into the group space so even there we're trying not to privatize the darkness, but to build over the course of the week the community's ability to witness and hold and repair. So we're training executives to be instruments of that repair and to be able to participate at that level of collective trauma work. Um, so yes, absolutely in a red program, we are doing that level of work. And of course, if you have 24 people in a plenary and everybody's stepping out and doing these, you know, very um, catalytic, profound healing work, the intimacy and the unlock of those private sessions then becomes also uh, part of the alchemy of the group work. And the group work, as it gets deeper, enables people to take more risks and and be even more courageous in looking at their lives. So it's a very beautiful virtuous circle. Um, I probably should draw it as a Mobius strip. Um, And uh, I think that's, you know, I'm very proud of Mobius doing that because it's, I think it is quite pioneering in leadership development to say, you can't not look at this deeper layer of hurt if you want to help people to have wider degrees of flexibility and fluidly, fluidity and responsiveness to, to lead emergently. One can't lead emergently if one is walking with too much frozen pain. Um, but if you if you get an unlock, and maybe the last thing I would say about that, is it just feels important to come full circle to the notion of uh, subtle or mystical healing, That the acceleration of what happens in a mobius 5 day program i believe only happens because many of us are gifted and guided to refine ourselves in in a in a kind of a transformational mode or what what i called an evolutionary mode um, and that that is a kind of uh profound and beautiful grace that makes the healing happen in a in a faster way and, and, that, and sort of out of time. Like it doesn't take a certain amount of time uh, at a certain frequency, it can happen quite immediately. And of course, one person's opening inspires another. So there's, it's not just mystical, it's also a, a kind of a community uh, amplifier effect um, which is why we do it in groups and not just individually. Although I also believe, you know, I know many of your listeners are coaches. I also believe that amplifier effect happens as well from the consistency of holding that a coach provides. I don't think it's only happens in a program. I think it also happens when a coach shows up over and over and over to accompany somebody with their love. I think it can happen. Mm. I'm sure people have had sessions where something opens up and moves in a way that seems not quite believable for how deep and profound it is even in a short session. That's the same, yeah. style, same phenomenon. Yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the potency of working as a group and then being able to work one-on-one is just uh, exponential because yeah, you know, so much of our uh, conditioning as you described as, as was formed in relationship, you know, so it, it can be activated in relationship yeah. much more powerfully than some than perhaps one on one although it does get activated there too so yeah yeah and i you know we're kind of like close to our time and um it feels like we need at least another hour um and i want to just ask you like is there anything you haven't shared that we haven't talked about like maybe there's something that you're looking at now that you're really excited about or um, you know, just some something like even a closing comment before we find out where we can find out more about your work too.
1: One thing that I'm working on with Thomas Hubel, which is a great privilege, um, he and I are really trying to um, provide uh, refined content around what it means to be a trauma-informed workplace. Um, I'm very delighted by the trend in our industry to pay attention to Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, mental health, depression, anxiety, burnout in the workplace. I feel proud that Mobius has been part of introducing this important wave of trauma information into leadership development, and I'm a bit concerned um, that a shallow version of addressing trauma start to take hold prematurely in the field. So Thomas and I are going to do two things in 2024 that we're preparing now one is a um, international summit for CHROs and HRDs and other uh, chief people officers, other uh, human resource professionals inside of companies that we'll do in the spring in London in partnership with Mobius's alliance partner Egon Zender, uh, looking at trauma-informed workplaces and what it means to build a trauma-sensitive and trauma-attuned workplace culture. And the other is that we're gonna do a year-long training for coaches, facilitators, team interventionists, and therapists who want to work in the corporate setting as a trauma-informed practitioner. It's going to be a year-long training with two in-person sessions and two online sessions. And Uh, A bunch of our friends who are trauma experts will be joining us on the faculty, and uh, people could look for that on the Mobius website being announced in the next few months, and we'd be absolutely delighted to talk to you about that program. We're really hoping to set a kind of gold standard for what it means to do this kind of depth work inside of companies, and I'm honored and privileged to partner with Thomas in this. My closing comment is this. I really want to bow to you as somebody who is helping our industry and the world to find voices of teaching and light. And uh, I'm very grateful and honored to be part of it. But I also really, on behalf of our collective field, want to thank you for the way that Coaches Rising is bringing these teachings and making guides and teachers so much more accessible to us as practitioners. It's It's a really beautiful and significant thing that you're doing for our field and I really thank
0: you for it. Oh, Amy, I'm touched. Yeah. And you know, I feel like we're we're uh partners in that, you know, because I see you doing the same and you're such a you've been such a supporter and connector, uh, an amplifier of what we do as well. So yeah, I won't deflect that too much too quickly, but <laughs> yeah, thank you, received and um Where can we find out more about your work as well? I know you've got like the, the gathering in October coming up as well and things like that. So.
1: Yeah, so um, the website is www.mobiusleadership.com. And if you are a practitioner and you go to the section of our website called Next Practice Institute, you'll find many workshops that we offer with the teachers that I've referenced and opportunities to be part of the community and the professional development path that we've designed. And as Joel uh, mentioned, uh, the week of October 15th, we do a global annual gathering, uh, which is a week of study and of Uh, practicing together and sharing uh, our work and learning from each other. And it's also a week of music and dance and Uh, meditation and great joy to be together and come together from all facets and disciplines of this kind of transformational change work from team intervention to consulting and culture work to uh, therapists and coaches and facilitators. So we welcome you to come be with us. We stream all the keynotes live and free on Facebook. So if you can't come to Boston, please join us online. We're delighted to have you. And I'm really so happy to have had this time together today, Joel. Thank you
0: here we are we're at the end of the podcast just a heads up again if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create then head to coachesrising.com put your name in the sign up box there you'll also find some of our other offerings our online trainings for coaches there and just want to end by wishing you well and i'll see you again next time